Hello, everybody. Welcome to the premiere episode of the Simulation Experts podcast, brought to you by Medical Simulation Corporation. My name is Trey Cook. I'm the creative director here at MSC and your host for this podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing the fifth leading cause of death in the United States, stroke. Stroke affects 800,000 Americans and kills 130,000 annually. But with timely treatment, the risk of death and disability from stroke can be lowered. And my guest today is someone who understands stroke patients so well, he pretends to be one during our fast-paced mock code stroke programs, Mr. Scott Bartholomew. Hello, Scott. Hello. Scott is one of our clinical education specialists here at MSC and the star of our mock code stroke simulation. Scott just returned from the European Stroke Conference in Prague, where he was in character for about a dozen performances, acting like a patient experiencing a stroke. So let's talk about the Prague event for sure. a second, where sure. you were uh, where you were on the bed being the patient. Right. right. So give us a run through of what that experience was like. I, I worked with another um, coworker. He facilitated the the simulations. I played the role of the patient, and it really went well. And we ran those about four times a day. And essentially, you know, we were, it was part of this European stroke conference. So there are about 5,000 um, people there. And most of them were physicians, neurologists. It was, it was a very eye-opening experience. And we were very happy that we got a lot of interest from some of the, uh, the different participants there. So asking how they can provide this training in their hospitals because they've seen a need for it. Scott, which hospital staff is involved in a mock code stroke simulation, and what value do they get from participating? Well, the value of a mock code stroke simulation is that it allows hospital teams to find gaps in their processes when caring for stroke patients, as well as establishing time-specific goals. So it's basically a team sport. Um, there's a number of individual players that bring their expertise. You've got your ambulance crew. You've got your doctors, nurses. You've got your emergency department techs, radiologists, pharmacists, neurologists, neurointerventionalists. So not only does the identification and treatment need to be safe and follow best practice guidelines, but it needs to be done fast. And I actually think of the, uh, um, if you've ever seen NASCAR, you've seen the pit crews. And it's all about timing. Everyone has a job to do, and split second can you know mean the difference of winning and losing. So what happens in the brain during a stroke that makes the speed of the team and the timing of the treatment so important? There's basically two kinds of stroke. You have uh, a bleed, which is called a hemorrhagic stroke, or you have a clot in the brain, which is called an acute ischemic stroke. That's the focus. Once you have a clot in the brain, um, blood flow to the brain is being obstructed, and if you're not getting blood, you're not getting oxygen. And at that point, cells start to die, and then you'll, you'll see um, subsequent brain damage. So the sooner we can get to treating that, the clot, the better the outcome. What's a good goal time for a team to hit when they're treating a patient? What are the worst times you've seen when you've been at this? There's been a gold standard out there uh, for stroke treatment, and it's, it's a one-hour standard. And it's essentially from the time the patient... Um, gets to the front door of the emergency department until they're treated with what's called a TPA, which is a clot-busting drug, um, one hour. But we're seeing that because we know that time is brain, the sooner we can treat that, the better, because every minute that passes, two million neurons are dying in your brain. So we're seeing now that they're trying to get that one-hour um, gold standard to a half hour. 
And so what that includes is getting a call from the ambulance before they even reach the hospital. So by the time that ambulance shows up, they might have a good idea in the ER what's going on with the patient, and they can rush them right into uh, uh, getting the treatment they need so there's no waiting around. It's just being able to execute and and having a lot of communication between outside of the hospital as well as all the players I mentioned inside the hospital. You know, you have patients at home who don't even recognize they're having a stroke, so you Absolutely. don't even know by the time the ambulance gets there Absolutely. Had a stroke? Right. And that's very important. We want to know one of the things we ask um, in healthcare is when was the, la- the, the time they were last known well? Because that comes into play. Um, if it's been too long, some of the treatments that the patient wouldn't qualify for are, uh, wouldn't be included. So it's very important. And that brings up another point. It's very important as healthcare providers to educate the public about the sim- symptoms of stroke because. Um, they play a major role in that as well, the family as well, getting them to uh, the care and the treatment they need as soon as possible. Especially since the stroke can strike basically out of nowhere. Absolutely. I I mentioned earlier there's a drug called TPA, which is a clot buster um, given to the patient, and it dissolves the clot. But you'll often have patients that will have pretty big clots, and that drug's not going to work on them. And so what happens is they'll need a procedure if they fit the criteria. It's a procedure called mechanical thrombectomy. It's actually similar to when a patient's having a heart attack and they do a cardiac catheterization. This is the same concept, but it's that catheter goes up even further into the brain and uh, a little, uh, little fishnet that's deployed and it surrounds the clot and pulls the clot out. And uh, this procedure has been approved by the American Stroke Association uh, about a year and a half ago, two years ago. It was very big news in stroke care. And, uh, but one of the big problems or issues with it is the patient has to be at what's called a comprehensive stroke center. And that's where they have uh, 24-7 neurointerventionalist teams. It's a hard word to say. but it's basically, yeah, it's a procedure where, you know, they want to have that done, you know, from the time they hit that front door within 90 minutes, have that procedure done if the clot-busting drug doesn't work. Those big stroke centers you were talking about, are those mostly in major metro areas? Yeah, yes. And so um, you basically have three types of stroke centers. Um, most of the uh, these treatments are done, like I said, these thrombectomies are done at the comprehensive centers. Gotcha. Um, you've got primary centers as well. But it's, it's very important then for the ambulance crews to be able to work with the hospitals and hospital systems to know where to take that patient. So that's interesting. So it really does come down to a public education piece. If you're at risk for stroke, having a stroke preparedness plan, just like you right. have in a plan to escape your house in the event of a fire. Absolutely. Know who to call, where to be transported to. Yep. What we're seeing in the United States now is what are called mobile stroke units, where when a patient's having a stroke, they get picked up by a, an ambulance. What's special about that is it has a CT scanner inside it because one of the uh, definitive tests as soon as a patient comes in with a stroke is to get a, a CT or CAT scan of the brain uh, to see if they're having a bleed or not. If they're not having a bleed, then it's most likely they're having what we had mentioned earlier. It's the clot. And so if they know on the ambulance that they're having that clot, they can actually start that drug right there. Um, and that's a great benefit as you've got traffic to deal with, um, sure. all of these issues. So, But on the downside, they're expensive. They're about a million dollars per rig. <laughs> but they're seeing some, some great benefits with these, these units. Time is brain. Time is brain. Time Ambulance is brain. Service. 
Absolutely. <laughs> so getting back to the simulation for a moment, sure. how did you get started uh, acting like stroke patients? Did you have uh, acting lessons? Well, I, I do have a theater background, and I've been working in the simulation education field for quite some time. And it was a few years ago, we were doing some stroke training at a, uh, a hospital here in Denver. And we got the idea that we wanted to utilize a real person. We were running four simulations a day, so I spent most of the the month of October in my uh, in a hospital gown and uh, uh, lying in bed because <laughs> we ran. We had about three hundred um, about three hundred nurses uh, that went through this training because this hospital was actually in the process of getting their uh, certification for comprehensive stroke center. We recently were uh, working with a customer and they wanted to do some stroke training and I suggested it and it went well and uh, it's just kind of taken off from there. Great. Have you ever been confused with an actual stroke patient? Yes and no, because when we do these mock strokes um, at a hospital, we will tell the key players, the managers. So there's some planning that goes ahead, but we don't tell some of the frontline staff um, we only tell them as they're in, in the midst of the simulation if they're going to do something that could be potentially harmful to me, like actually, you know, start try to start an IV or put me in an MRI or do a CAT scan. They're all totally 100% engaged, and even when we tell them, they still, you know, they still play the part. They start pinching you, digging in your nail beds. Ab- absolutely, kind of- um, they do. <laughs> um, it's important for me to stay in character. I, I understand that some of these things are going to happen because, um, yeah, as part of the stroke assessment, they do things like that because they're checking for sensation in in basically the putting the affected side, so you lose sensation in that. So the tests. Uh, yes, I do get pinched a lot. <laughs> so MSC is a simulation company, and typically, you know, we would have a simulator or a mannequin on the table that the healthcare professionals would be interacting and training on. What is it about stroke that requires a human in bed instead of a simulator? Well, I think a big part of it is um, when they're doing the workup of the patient, there's a lot of subtleties with doing the neurologic assessment. It's called the NIHS it's basically the National Institute of Health Stroke Scale, and it's a very it's a it's a standard test that all you know uh, stroke patients get. It's a battery of tests, but that includes the patient smiling, um, raising the eyebrows. The uh, physician or whoever is administering the test will have the patient follow their finger, you know, do different tests. Not to mention sensation tests, raising the arms up and down, and you know. So all of these things that require that a mannequin, you know, I can't can't do. So you you really do need a, a human being. It's just a lot of subtlety in how they're diagnosing. It Absolutely, like. yeah. So in this case, the human is the best simulator. Yeah, simulators can be anything. Let's say you're a you know you're a nursing student. And you want to practice injections. Well, you do that on an orange. So That's right. That piece Absolutely. of fruit ends up being a simulator. Well, and I like to say that. Um, you know, back when I went to school, simulators are, were our classmates because we didn't have the high, high fidelity, high tech mannequins. So we practiced a lot of things on each other. And they've been doing that in medical school for years now. What we call the actor who's playing the role of the patient, it's called a standardized patient. And they've been doing that in the, in the, since the 70s, actually, in medical schools. It'll be interesting to see, you know, one day how virtual and augmented realities uh, come into play in scenarios like this. Absolutely. 
So let's say you're in the middle of a scenario and you see someone make a mistake. Do you do you stop the simulation right there and address the problems, or do you wait until after the simulation is over? We usually wait. Um, now, the only reason we would stop a simulation for any reason if there is some type of safety issue, if we're seeing you know, the scenario go off the rails at all. But for the most part, no, we won't stop it. We might take a brief operational timeout, what we say. Um, for instance, when we're uh, doing these, what we call the process runs, where we go into the hospitals and we're going through the process of coming through the front door on the ambulance and then taking that patient through the hospital, get all these tests done. For the most part, we're just going to run it and then we allow time for debriefing afterward. So let's talk a second about the debrief. Take me through what that experience is like for someone who's participating in this simulation. I can tell you it's very important to have a debrief because there's a little bit of an emotional or psychological factor that goes in because sometimes participants and providers are feeling perhaps that they're being you know tested or judged or tricked. And our, our goal is to allow them to not only express how they felt about the activity, but also to express, you know, how they can improve their processes. So the first thing that's most important is their own psychological safety because we're there to learn and we're there ultimately to improve the process for the patient. Having said that, it's very important uh, to explain the reason we're doing the simulation once we're done with it because once again on this process runs, they don't have a heads up. It's, it's, it's real to them. So they need to be able to express how that experience was, but then at the same time, then be able to step back and and then discuss as a team, all right, now, how can we improve this process? You know, your adrenaline is up. You need to be able to make those decisions. And really the only be able to, the way to be able to do that is just have that in your muscle memory, just knowing what to do next. And Absolutely. Do next. It's, it's, and, you know, you're seeing a lot of, um, facilities um, institute monthly trainings doing these type of things um, because it's really everyone has it as a role and people are working together. So there's there could be six different things going on at the same time. Everyone knows what their role is and they jump into that role. And when it comes down to it, um, people are talking, they're communicating. Airlines do that a lot when they have, a, they call it recruit resource management, where they do training on a monthly basis. So everyone knows when, you know, in, an incident happens that you know what your role is and you jump in and, and you perform that role to the best of your ability. Well, that's it for our premiere episode of the Simulation Experts podcast. The MSC Mock Code Stroke Simulation is focused on stroke systems of care, adherence to evidence-based guidelines, strategies to decrease door-to-reperfusion times, improving functional outcomes, patient criteria for mechanical thrombectomy, and team communication. If you have any questions or feel your healthcare team could benefit from our Mock Code Stroke training, we'd love to hear from you and answer your questions. To contact MSC, simply go to our website at medsimulation.com and click contact. Fill out the form and we'll get back to you shortly. Again, that's www.medsimulation.com and click contact. Thanks for your time today, Scott. It was great talking to you. Thanks, Trey. (laughs) From all of us here at MSC, have a fantastic day. Bye, everybody. See ya.